Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and the ceiling wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my sleepy partner awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room. Uh, Wonderful people that join us every week. So, Ravinder, would you like to tell us about it? I certainly am very sleepy today after you were on uh, Coast to Coast AM with George Nuri last night. We didn't get to bed until three o'clock so that's four hours sleep and I'm still I'm barely functioning but I am in the chat room and we do have a great uh, group of people in there that you know um, add to the conversation provide some humor definitely bring some wisdom and insight as well so I always learn something from them if you can do come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat you know, George Nury is about the only thing that's going to keep me up to that wee hours in the morning. But I love just sharing with him. Coast to Coast is a great show. He gave us a big plug last night. So if you're a Coast listener and you're joining us for the first time in this show, welcome. We appreciate it. In this week's Spotlight, we turn our attention to the stranger within. Now think about that for a moment. Do you really know yourself? Have you ever taken an inventory of your beliefs, your ideas, your personal story, if told honestly by someone else. Who are you really? Last week, we discussed self-awareness, and the data suggests that only some 10 to 15% of us are truly self-aware, despite the fact that the majority of us think otherwise. Indeed, often the folks who insist they are the most self-aware are, in fact, the least. In my book, Choices and Illusions, the notion of several selves is explored. There are at least four self-representations that we all live with. They are the actual self, the ideal self, the ought self, and the desired self. And every one of us rehearses our different roles at some time in our lives, practicing how we will stand, the things we will say, our hand gestures, and so forth. So it's no wonder that when you put your jeans and canvas shoes on, you behave differently than when you are all dressed up in your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. And I do mean that you behave differently, almost like a chameleon changing colors to blend into the background. Our clothing can change our demeanor, our attitudes, and even our language patterns. So how many selves are there? And this says nothing of our spiritual self. We'll add one more entry to the fray. Researchers at UCLA suggest that there is a significant emotional disconnect between our present and future selves. And further, largely because of this disconnect, we fail to adequately prepare for the future. We do not see ourselves as we might look 30, 40, 50 years into the future. Perhaps this is one of the reasons so many resist accepting the aging process to say nothing of failing to financially plan for what's ahead. 
quoting from UCLA's online newsroom. Hal Hirschfield of UCLA and his collaborators from Stanford have been able to document that disconnect using fMRI technology. They compare the neural patterns in the brains of subjects who are asked to describe their current selves, their future selves 10 years hence, as well as other people. Across the board, the neural patterns evoked from thinking about the future self were most similar to the patterns that arose when thinking about another person. In other words, on a brain level, the future self looked like another person. And the research participants who had the biggest differences in brain activations, that is, the people for whom the future self looked most like another person, were the ones who were the least patient about making financial decisions during an exercise, meaning that they weren't willing to wait for larger financial rewards. By contrast, those who worked with a computer that aged their photographs were about twice as likely to accept long-term hypothetical gains from savings. Now, this research caught the eyes of many, including Merrill Lynch and Dan Goldstein of Microsoft. Merrill Lynch has an online method for aging yourself using a webcam photo. It's called face retirement. Now, as for Microsoft, they're working on wireless scales that can combine a subject's height, weight, waist size, and so forth to create a sort of avatar of what you might look like if you choose the wrong foods, fail to exercise, or otherwise maintain healthy habits. So if you want to see what you're going to look like if you're just Eating down those Big Macs for the next 20 years is a great kind of a toy to play with. The idea is that subjects will get an email every day reflecting the direction they are headed in based on their activities. Perhaps we could all do well to begin integrating the many selves into one dynamic being traveling through time in this spatial dimension, for after all, in the end, that's who or what we are. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, I find that fascinating. You know, you talk about people not being able to see themselves as their older self. And it's like, I I must be weird because I've always been able to do that. I have very strong images. I think of, you know, um, how I'm going to feel on my deathbed over most of the choices, the emotional kinds of choices that we have. I always think, you know, on my deathbed, will I feel like I've done my best um, at this? You know, have I just achieved everything that I that I could but I don't only think about the deathbed stuff I'm not that morbid Um, (laughs) that's just one aspect of it but I think of myself as a hundred and when I'm a hundred I picture myself running the same and I don't see myself as this old decrepit type of person I see myself as pretty active not that I've got anything against um getting older because older just means getting wiser and learning more and you know all of that stuff but um yeah no i often see myself as older so you, i often so, think about so it you think you do now i've got to play devil's advocate no you don't you I can do. just be nice once in a while <laughs> i remember you were dyeing your hair you were completely resisting to letting your hair be natural and because you were harsh dyes it was thinning And I said to you, let it go, let it go. It's really pretty. It's silver. And you finally did. But when you say you saw yourself aging, I don't think you saw yourself as a silver fox that you are. And I mean, many people have complimented you on your hair since then. But 
you know, seeing ourselves, not at the end, not out here, I'm 100 years old and I'm running. That's pretty easy. But seeing ourselves 10 years and then 20 years and then 30 years based on what we're doing and how that that variable might be, I don't think that's quite that easy. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I would see the hair dyeing thing differently. There are lots of people out there that would argue that um, it helps them feel better. It's like dressing well, you know, so it's just a variation and you don't let yourself go. That would be the argument. I am happier now that I have uh, stopped coloring my hair. And you're right. I've had you stopped so coloring your many hair. We're in Tampa, Florida. It's not been uh, a month since you stopped covering it, coloring it. We're sitting in a restaurant. There's a fellow sitting alone in a nice business suit, very nice looking guy. And he, he, he looks over at our table and says, I have to tell you, I love your hair. Out of nowhere, unsolicited. That was, that was the, the first compliment I had. It was a bit more than a month. It takes more than that time for it to, just to grow uh-huh. out. But yeah, no, I've had strangers come up to me and compliment me on it. I've had more compliments since I stopped coloring it than I had the entire time prior. So as the devil's advocate, you didn't really sell, see yourself as a silver-haired beauty, right? Okay. Every week I read some of our letters. See, I just cut you off. Wake up. <laughs> no, I'm going to take a nap now. <laughs> All right. I read some of your letters as our way of involving you, paying respect to you for the very important role you play in making this show successful. I can't thank you enough. Last week our show featured Tasha Yurik. And we discussed her research and book, Insight, Why We're Not As Self-Aware As We Think So. Judy wrote, what a great show. I went to her site and took the free test and discovered I wasn't nearly as aware as I thought. Something to work on, love your shows. You, know, you and I took the test, too, and there were a couple of surprises. It's, it's, it's an interesting test to take, but I'm not sure about who you select as your partner you to evaluate to, you. You do have to find be the right there. person. <laughs> Brian wrote, great show. Do some stuff to mentally masticate. Richard wrote, every person in America, okay, just anyone I have to deal with, should read and practice this book. The Missing Element in Our Narcissistic Mosh Pit, Self-Awareness and a Touch of Humility. I can't express enough how good it feels to have these cool authors on your show. Well, thank you, Richard. Moving on, Gabriel wrote, I am a fan of your Intertalk subliminals. They are really good. I purchased several titles in Spanish. Anyway, I want you to know some byproduct of listening to your audios in English. After two weeks of listening to Accelerated Healing, I found out it was easier for me to understand spoken English in movies, songs, etc. I don't know if it's due to some inner block being healed or that listening to affirmations in English does have such effect. I read a lot of English material, but listening and understanding spoken English was not an easy task. In the past, I only used InterTalk in Spanish, and now I've discovered this benefit was surprise. You know, interestingly, when we did those language studies in German, the vocabulary was, of course, all in the appropriate tongue. If you were you know, a German-speaking person trying to learn English, then the vocabulary, the, the subliminal vocabulary was in English. And the results of that research indicated the acquisition of, uh, you know, the new language, the new vocabulary was exponentially greater than, yeah. Lloyd wrote, 
I found your intertalk samples to be incredibly helpful. I am taking care of an ill spouse and was so stressed I knew I would become ill myself if I didn't find some help. Listening to the samples you have online has been a way for me to feel calm, patient, and less stressed. I find myself noticing the beauty of the world where before I was just totally caught up in my spouse's pain and illness. You know, for all of you out there, we do have a number of samples that are online. And uh, we invite you to come, you know, listen to them. They don't cost you a dime. Just go to Intertalk, one word, I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K, dot com. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But we love your feedback, so keep it coming. You can opine by writing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. And, Ravinder, you appreciate them too, don't you? Always. Don't go to sleep. I will not let you do that. There's no <laughs> wagging off now. All right. Now to today's show, The Confidence Gap with Dr. Russ Harris. Our guest copy says this about his book. Drawing on the techniques of acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, a cutting-edge form of cognitive behavioral therapy, The Confidence Gap explains how to, A, Free yourself from common misconceptions about what confidence is and how to build it. B, transform your relationship with fear and anxiety. C, clarify your core values and use them as your inspiration and motivation. And D, use mindfulness to effectively handle negative thoughts and feelings. Now, if the book comes through on that, it's certainly worth a read. So let me tell you a little about our guest. Russ Harris is a medical practitioner, psychotherapist, and executive coach. She is author of ACT Made Simple, ACT with Love, The Reality Slap, Getting Unstuck in ACT, The Happiness Trap, and The Confidence Gap, the book we'll be talking about today. He is also a trainer in acceptance and commitment therapy. He lives and practices in Melbourne, Australia. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Russ Harris. Uh, Hello. Thank you for having me. Third time's a charm, isn't it? I mean, the first time, what, we we missed times you didn't get out of bed. The second time, we had connection problems on our end. You know, what's meant to be is meant to be, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, third time lucky. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. Well, we like to know three things uh, from our guests, if I may call you Russ. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So let's begin by having you tell us what made it, it motivated you to write The Confidence Gap. Well, basically, there's a huge need for it. Um, I, I see so many people that are being held back in life by the story, I don't have the confidence. Um I'm not going to do it because I'm not confident enough. And when I'm confident, then I'll do it. Uh, And unfortunately, um, the the idea that most people have of confidence is a very modern and self-defeating idea. Um, Confidence comes from the Latin uh, com fides, which means with faith or with trust. So throughout most of English history, um, the word confidence had nothing to do with how you feel. It wasn't a feeling. It was an act of faith or an act of trust. And in the last 50 to 70 years, the meaning has changed, and people now talk about confidence as a feeling. You can still find the older uh, definition in the dictionary, but these days people, what they're really saying is, until I feel good, until I get rid of all my feel of 
fear of failure, until I have no self-doubt, until I'm anxiety-free, when I feel absolutely certain and sure that I will succeed, then I will do it. And if that's your attitude in life, it's really going to hold you back because, of course, uh, when we step out of our comfort zone to do new things, try new things, learn new skills, face our challenges, we often do feel anxious and we often do have self-doubt and real confidence is doing what's important even when you're feeling afraid, when you have that doubt and uh, fear of failure. All right. You heard today's spotlight piece. Based on Uh, your work, how truly self-aware do you think most of us are? And do you think that's something we should be working on? And and how does it impinge on confidence? Well, I I don't think most of us are are that Um, (laughs) self-aware. Can I... um, uh, and uh, I, I think what happens is very often we've got a lot of self-talk going on in our heads that we're not really that aware of and that we respond to um, automatically. And, and when that self-talk, uh, those kind of stories, you know, I can't do it because of this, that, or the other, uh, uh, when we're not aware of that talk, it has a huge impact on ourselves. Also, we're often not very self-aware of our own actions and the long-term consequences that they have. So, um, uh, I, I think, you know, uh, ACT, by the way, um, the, uh, we like to call it ACT rather than ACT. Um, is, is that, uh, mindfulness is a big part of it, and, and mindfulness uh, increases your self-awareness. You can use mindfulness to be aware of your thoughts and your actions and your feelings. So, uh, I mean, I, I think it's a huge issue, uh, this, this lack of self-awareness. Let me, you know, kind of follow up on that if I can. It it seems to me a bit ironic that I agree with you about uh, the number of people who lack confidence according to how we've described it, how you've described it. That is, you know, they have the feelings of fear of failure and, and et cetera and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, I, I see these same people all over Facebook, social networking platforms, and they're, you know, they're absolutely know-it-alls. They're, you know, they've got all the information. They have, you know, they're, they're so self-oriented that it seems you, you can't even communicate with many today. Do you find that paradoxical or do you have the same observations that I do? I think that's a, it's a very valid observation. And, um, you know, one of the key things that in the ACT approach we teach people to recognize is the difference between intellectual knowledge uh, and actual uh, experiential wisdom. You know, it's all very well having a head full of facts and lots and lots of knowledge, um, but what we get people to do is reflect on is if you let this kind of, uh, if you let these thoughts guide your actions, if you let these beliefs guide what you do in life, where is it actually taking you? Is it taking you towards the life you want or away from the life you want? And we encourage people to rely less on that kind of intellectual knowledge and more on their direct awareness of their experience and uh, kind of teach people to actually track the results of their actions and what they're doing um, rather than just relying on uh, the, the kind of um, over-relying on this intellectual knowledge you know, that, that we have in the West, this idea that I, I think, therefore I am, and thinking is the answer to everything. Um, because you can know what's good for you and you can know what's effective. And if you don't have the capacity to 
capacity, the capacity to make room for feelings of fear, the capacity to unfit yourself from self-doubt, you will not do what you know intellectually is best or right for you. I agree. Okay. I enjoyed reading your book. It's very well written, and I think it's very informative. And, you know, I'm, and for all intent and purpose, I, you know, I'm telling you that is endorsing your book to our listening audience. But now I've got to ask you this. One of your readers said this about your book. Just as I suspected, all that think positive Pollyanna drivel is poppycock. According to Russ Harris, author of The Confidence Gap, we have all to think negatively. A hundred thousand years ago, if you weren't on constant vigil for dangers like lions, tigers, and bears in your environment, you didn't live very long, certainly not long enough to pass on your Pollyanna genes. So please explain for us. Is positive thinking just some form of Pollyanna poppycock? And if so, why? Well, uh, you know, the problem is that positive thinking refers to so many different things. Um, and so I, I certainly wouldn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, for example, <laughs> part of ACT is, um, is clarifying your values, what's important to you, what matters to you, what you care about in life. Uh, making plans, coming up with effective strategies to achieve what you want. Now, I wouldn't normally call that positive thinking, but it depends on how you define positive thinking. If positive thinking means kind of thinking effectively to achieve what you want in life, then you could call it that way. Um, but unfortunately, positive thinking often means, uh, you know, just trying to think away your negative feelings. And if that's your notion of positive thinking, oh, I'm just going to think positively, and then I won't feel anxious, and then all my self-doubt will disappear. If that's your idea, then it's unrealistic to expect that's going to be effective in really challenging stressful situations or developing new skills or stepping out of your comfort zone to, to try new things. Um, and you probably wouldn't want it to be effective in those situations anyway because, the, uh, you know, we can go on to talk about the huge benefits of anxiety and fear of failure and self-doubt and there's many contexts in which those things are helpful to you and, and you want them, you wouldn't want to get rid of them. So it really depends on what you mean by positive thinking. I, 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 I wouldn't, um, uh, you know, there, there are some types of thinking that tell you if you just ask the universe for what you want and believe it, then it will materialize. And I, I think that's when, um, <laughs> but, you know, the problem is all these different types of positive thinking that can be used under the same terminology. So I prefer to just put the term aside altogether and talk about, you know, effective thinking. Right, right. I'm glad you clarified that. The secret, the idea that you can sit at your desk and visualize millions coming in and do nothing else is is just nonsense, and it is not positive thinking, and it, I don't even consider it Pollyanna in the sense of the traditional use of Pollyanna. But just as a clarification here for our listening audience, the kind of positive thinking you're talking about where I look at the world and I accept the world and, and I find the best in everything and I appreciate my uh, everything that I have, the air that I breathe, uh, my spouse, my children, etc. That kind of thinking has been shown to have some truly beneficial effects, even uh, influencing the manifestation of the DNA molecule. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, uh, these are ideas that are inherently... It just would be because the term uh, positive thinking is so confusing and used to apply to so many different things that I, 
I don't use it. I put it to one side. Um, but all the things that you said, appreciation, gratitude, and, uh, you know, look, looking at the world, uh, the perspectives that you take, um, uh, your, your values, and, and letting meaning and purpose guide you in life, that's incredibly useful stuff. I'm going to be incredibly positive that we have you on the show today, and we're talking about your book, The Confidence Gap, A Guide to Overcome Fear and Self-Doubt. We have a break coming up. Um, we're speaking with Russ Harris about his book, The Confidence Back. You heard Confidence Gap. Excuse me. That must be the 3 a.m. slip. Uh, you can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at actmindfully, as one word, dot com, dot au, Australia, actmindfully.com.au. dot au. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest's explanation of values versus goals. It's a powerful video. So if you're not in the chat room and you can get on over there, now's the time to do that. Simply go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Now it's time to 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Russ Harris about his book, The Confidence Gap. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at actmindfully.com.au. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. And indeed, it is a subject of a new book I'm working on right now. And you'd be surprised at the number of our guests that are making contributions by answering this next question. So we just played Everybody Hurts by Tina Arena. Tell us, Russ, why is this music important to you and how does it inform us about who you are? I love that song, and uh, I love uh, Tina's uh, rendition of it. Uh, I think it's just this reality uh, that that life is painful. Life involves all sorts of difficulties and challenges and obstacles, and uh, our culture doesn't really prepare us very well to deal with the inevitable pain of life. Um, You know, a full human life comes with the full range of emotions, not just the ones that feel pleasant and good. And so I think it's very important that people learn if, you, if you're going to do any important life project, whether that's raising children or making your marriage work or building a career, it's going to be no shortage of painful feelings and emotions that go with that. So let's learn how to um, open up and make room for those feelings instead of fighting with them or running from them or struggling with them. You know, with all the technology that we have today, you know, this technocratic world that we live in, you think back to some of the older cultures and the rites of passage that were involved with those cultures and and how for all intent and purposes through each rite we moved into a new area and, and we were trained to understand that area and the old era was left behind. How important do you think the loss of that cultural a model is to the modern world? Well, I think it's, uh, it's very important that we're aware of our history, uh, whatever culture we live in, and, and how it's uh, impacted on us today. Um, and there are always things that we can really learn uh, from the past about what works and what doesn't work. I, I no. think that the... I don't yeah, think sorry. I made myself clear. I am sorry, Russ. Let me put it differently, okay. if I may. You know, let's take the Native Americans. Uh, They had a tradition where you would move from a papoose to a a young man to a brave. Uh, And and each of these rites of passages had certain things, requirements that you had to do. They came at a point in your age uh, or a point in your life, a given age, when you were called upon to make that transition. And there was a great celebration once you had successfully made the transition, etc. Now, I think of your book, The Confidence Gap, and as I read the book, I kind of thought, you know, one of the problems with confidence today is that we bring all, you know, the garbage forward, if you will, Robert Bly's long bag. We bring all of that, no, don't, all of that, you're not old enough, you're too stupid, you know, everything... The past is never where you think it is. That's what Catherine Porter said. We bring that all into the future. Now, we're not consciously aware of it, but it's, it's impacting us. And, and, I, and, and I guess what I'm saying is, do you think if we had rites of passage that there would be less of a confidence gap? 
Oh, yeah, I think that, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, I'm glad you clarified it wasn't quite on that. Uh, I, I think those kind of things are incredibly useful, and I think uh, certainly in the West we, we need uh, uh, rites of passage and we need to uh, take young people and middle-aged people and old people through uh, rites of passage, which um, uh, help them to really... Uh, face up to the challenges and difficulties of life and yeah, I think those kind of I don't know a, a lot of detail about those Native American rituals But for sure they involve challenge and facing difficulty and obstacle and uh, The people going through that would have learned a lot about dealing and facing up to their fears and, uh, and Persisting with the things that are uh, challenging and difficult which are, are skills that are increasingly kind of getting lost in our modern culture uh, as we're all kind of obsessed with, you know, feeling good and quick fixes all the time. So yeah, yes. I think there could be a huge uh, benefit from bringing those things in. Yes, yes, yes. I totally agree. All right. Other than that, I guess I have to ask, do you think everybody lacks confidence at some level? And and, and what is the confidence gap derived from? I mean, I, if it affects most of us, um, where does it originate? Well, I, I think pretty much everybody lacks confidence in some areas of life. If, if you ever met somebody that was just confident at everything, then they'd be what we call overconfident um, right. or delusions of grandeur or something, right? Right. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, one of the key points in my book is that uh, competence precedes confidence. Yeah, if you if you want to uh, genuinely feel confident something, first you have to reach a point of competence. You have to do it over and over and over and over again until you can at least do it competently. And before you reach competence, you're going to be making lots of mistakes, lots of uncertainty, lots of doubt. Um, and so it, it's completely natural and normal. If if uh, you know if if we if we look at our ancestors. Um, you know, which ancestors uh, were the ones that survived longest to have the most offspring? Um, the ones that were kind of just went into things with this blind, naive optimism, oh, this is all going to be great, I'm going to go out and hunt a bear, and I don't need to do any practice, and I'll just kill the bear. You know, that's, that one didn't live very long. The one who was kind of anxious and worried and thought, you know, bears, they're pretty dangerous. I'd better practice with my weapons. I'd better talk to the other members of the group about what the best ways are of hunting bears. I'd better be really kind of cautious and safe about this. Um, that one was more likely to survive and kill the bear and have more children who eventually kind of <laughs> over generations gave rise to us today. Right. We don't have any saber-toothed tigers in our modern world, so we take fight-flight, we turn it to anxiety and depression. How does that impact our confidence? Well, I think, um, you know, anxiety and depression, I'm glad you linked them together because there's lots of commonality. And we can think about it as, you know, one of the, th it's basically your mind trying to protect you or save you from things that are unpleasant and uncomfortable. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, our, our ancestors, uh, the, the needed minds that did this, that warned you of things that could hurt or harm you or real danger. You've given the example of saber-toothed tigers, you know. Um, 
and, and our minds still do that in the modern world. Um, but the problem is now that our minds warn us about things like you might fail, you might get rejected, or they even warn us about our own emotions. Anxiety is bad. This feeling of sadness is bad. You shouldn't feel pain. And, and so our minds tell us in the modern world to avoid anything that is kind of uncomfortable or unpleasant. And that's kind of the dark side. You know, the bright side of this is that it helps us avoid genuine dangers and threats. Like if there really is, a, you know, a wild dog on the loose or a car's going to come and hit you or someone is about to attack you. You want a mind that's going to warn you to get out of the way and, and, and look after yourself. But the dark side is that our mind is often trying to protect us from things that are not dangerous. And they're just uncomfortable and difficult. And, uh, and of course, that holds us back. Our self-talk is generally thought of as a mirror on our true beliefs, Russ. I mean, that is, if our self-talk is negative about a goal or something, then it's assumed that we don't really believe that we deserve, you know, success in that particular way or that we can't achieve it. For most behavioral scientists, this arises as a result of our enculturation process. Is there more to it than that, in your opinion? Well, I think there is. I, I think, you know, if, if you read the uh, autobiography, I'm, uh, I mean, I love reading autobiographies of, of any successful person. There'll be periods in that autobiography where they talk about their self-doubt, their fear of failure, how they thought it was whole, hopeless, and, and the kind of inspiring thing is how they carry on anyway. So I, 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 I think, uh, you know, it, you can really believe in something and want something, and you can also have all sorts of self-doubt that shows up along the way. And it's about being able to have a look at wh what aspects of your thoughts are, are useful and helpful to let guide your actions. Uh, like in the ACT approach, uh, there's a particular category of thought that we pay great attention to, which are our values, which we use to kind of inspire and motivate and guide us. And there are other types of thoughts that are not so useful and not so helpful. Um, but uh, we, we have much less control over our thoughts than we would like to. And, you know, if we go back to the concept of positive thinking, uh, keeping in mind that it means many different things, one of the areas where um, uh, it, it, it can set people up for unrealistic expectations is that learning to think positively won't stop your mind from generating negative thoughts. Just like if you learn to speak Spanish, you won't forget English. Um, and uh, uh, we, we have inherited these minds from our ancestors uh, and we do have this propensity to think negatively and there's lots of contexts in which that is really useful. For example, uh, therapists that are high in self-doubt are much more effective, research shows, than therapists that are high in self-confidence provided that as well as self-doubt, they also have high self-compassion, kind of acknowledging their pain and suffering, being there in a kind and supportive way. So the best therapists were ones that were high in self-doubt and high in self-compassion, less effective were therapists that had high self-confidence, and least effective were ones that had high self-doubt and low self-compassion. Uh, and so, uh, you know, again, when people talk about positive thinking, they're not usually talking about self-compassion, but self-compassion, acknowledging your pain, acknowledging how difficult, saying kind things to yourself, being there in a kind, supportive way for yourself is incredibly uh, powerful and useful way of thinking. In, in some senses, uh, Russ, do you think that we as a society, Western world I'm speaking of now when I say that, have become so self-oriented in our consumerism and 
and uh, in our pursuit of beauty and success that we've actually become narcissistic and delude ourselves on a, a daily basis about our own self-importance. I, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, narcissism is epidemic. And of course, uh, social media feeds all of this and uh, uh, inflated uh, self-confidence. And you probably know about all the, 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 the self-esteem building research in, in, in young kids yeah. and how badly it went wrong. Telling kids you're wonderful, you're fantastic, uh, sets them up for, for failure. Um, the the uh, effective praise based on what the kid's doing. Well done, you persisted with that. That was really good. Is much more effective than saying, "Oh, you're a great kid." You know. Right. Okay. Let's turn to ACT or ACT. Your book is based on acceptance and commitment therapy. For our listening audience, what exactly is ACT? Well, it's a model. Uh, of it's a science-based model really for helping humans to maximize their potential to live a rich full and meaningful life and i've emphasized the science there's over a thousand published uh, research studies on various aspects of act uh, and it's now being used with everything from uh, kids in the classroom to prisoners in rehab to Olympic athletes to dealing with the, the bread and butter stuff of therapy, depression, anxiety, addiction, and so forth. Uh, and it really, ACT helps people to live a ritual and meaningful life through firstly clarifying their values, you know, your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave as a human being, what you want to stand for in life, and using your values as like a compass to guide your actions, where you go and what you do. And also through the, the, the flexible and creative use of mindfulness skills. So it's not about mindfulness meditation, but it's about using mindfulness skills such as self-awareness and awareness of others and unhooking from difficult thoughts and opening up and making room for difficult feelings and engaging and focusing on what's important in life and bringing this kind of values and mindfulness together to, to help people build. Basically, the outcome we're looking for is the capacity to build a rich and meaningful life. Russ, I think you've made it clear that confidence is not synonymous with fearlessness. Uh, how do you develop then genuine confidence? Well, uh, I think that the first step is kind of um, is, is 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 to realize exactly what you just said. You know, confidence is not fearlessness, and as as long as you're holding on to that idea, you're doomed to to failure or, or self defeat. Um, so that's your starting point. Uh, and from there, then recognizing that fear is normal, anxiety is normal, self-doubt is normal, we all have it. And if I go through my life trying to avoid it, then I'm going to basically live a very small life. Um, and the golden rule of confidence uh, that I, I repeat throughout the book is that the actions of confidence come first, the feelings of confidence come later. So it's about that, uh, I'm sure you've probably talked about it on your show many times, that idea of stepping out of your comfort zone. Uh, and uh, each time you step out of your comfort zone, there will be discomfort and acknowledging that's normal. It's normal that I feel scared. It's normal that I, I have some anxiety. Oh, there's, you know, when the self-doubt pops up, you can kind of say, ah, there's my mind trying to save me. There's my mind trying to protect me from uncomfortable feelings or protect me from failure or protect me from something going wrong. Thanks, mind. I know you're trying to help. And I've got this handled. And actually, you know, take that step 
and uh, and learn some some skills to uh, 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 most people you know the, the problem in a radio interview if I just say oh you know accept your anxiety that's right back to what we call intellectual knowledge it's one thing knowing intellectually that I need to learn how to open up and make room for my anxiety it's another thing altogether to actually learn the skills of actually acknowledging my anxiety and letting it flow through with flow through me there's nothing I'm going to be able to say in a chat show that will help people to do that they need to invest in actually learning the skills Russ today many people suggest free will is an illusion a hotly debated subject on campuses throughout America and Europe fMRI research has demonstrated that it's our subconscious processes that make our decisions so how does ACT deal with this, or do you think our subconscious is really in control? Well, I, I, th I think, firstly, we need to, if we want to be effective in the world, we have to assume that even if free will is an illusion, we have to assume it, otherwise we become paralyzed, you know. Uh, and uh, so uh, if, if, if it, and it's still, as you say, hotly debated, but if it is an illusion, it's a very powerful one and it's a good one to let guide us. Let's act on the assumption that we do have free will and that we can make choices because our life will go so much better if we act on that assumption. Uh, then I, I think the other thing is that uh, any uh, human behavior in any moment is is influenced by so many different factors. It's actually impossible to know everything that's influencing your behavior in this moment. It's influenced by your genes, your epigenes, the environment you're in, what you've been eating and drinking, uh, your, the, your thoughts, your feelings. Uh, basically, everything you can see here, touch, taste, smell, think, feel, and do in this moment will influence your behavior. So you can't know everything that influences but you can bring in values as a conscious motivator. You become aware about the sort of person you want to be, about how you want to treat yourself and others. You can be aware of those thought processes and you can kind of bring them in to, to guide and have an influence on your behavior. Okay, I've kind of got a two-part follow-up question to that then, Russ. When a person, you know, anyone, has a truly aberrant thought, should they own it and then go on to desensitize or reframe it and, you know, and how normal is it for folks to have aberrant thoughts? Well, it's incredibly normal. And the more, you know, let me give you an example. Uh, some of the most courageous, loving, caring, dedicated, brave, kind parents I've ever met are parents of children with disabilities, um, autism spectrum disorders, Down syndrome, and so forth. And these parents, they're the most loving, caring, committed parents. And then they're horrified when they find this thought pops into their head. Oh, my life would be easier if my son had never been born. Or my life would be easier if, 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 if uh, my daughter had never been born. And, and I kind of say to them, you know, the research shows that uh, about 95% of parents who have children with these kinds of issues have these thoughts. These thoughts don't reflect your values. These thoughts don't reflect whether you love your kid or not. These thoughts pop up and we can trace them back to, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of ancient mind that we've inherited from our ancestors. Our, our minds are basically problem solving machines. And the problem here is that there's a source of pain. And so your mind, out of your conscious control, starts coming up with ways to solve the pain. And of course, one of the, the ways to solve the pain is that this child was never born. 
and I, I go on to talk to couples. You know, uh, I, I run workshops for couples, and I run I run trainings all around the world, and I just basically ask people, anybody here in a loving, caring, committed relationship that has never had thoughts about either leaving the relationship or hurting their partner in some way, has never wanted to shout something hurtful or do something hurtful or, or, or leave, <laughs> and no one has ever said yes. You know, you mentioned at the start of the show the fight or flight response. This shows up in our thoughts. We either want to fight with things or we want to run with things, uh, run from things, you know. So it's completely right. natural to, to have those thoughts. And I think you're absolutely right. The first thing you want to do is acknowledge, ah, there's my mind thinking. I didn't choose this thought. It's completely natural to have thoughts of this nature. And that will be the first step in desensitizing it. It's like just recognizing it's a thought. It popped up into your head. You didn't choose it. Here it is. But you've got a choice about how you respond to it. You can let it guide your actions or not, you know. Yeah, good, good. All right, I've got a question out of the chat room, and we've only got about two minutes. So question from Richard in the chat room. A central theme of ACT is that it is futile to do things to try and make your bad emotions go away like so many self-help concepts advocate. The first word in ACT is accept. Could you ask Russ to comment on this difference between ACT and pop psychology's nostrums? Yeah, well, most of uh, pop psychology, uh, there are exceptions, uh, you know, emphasizes, kind of demonizes uh, unpa unpleasant, painful emotions, often calls them negative emotions, uh, right. which I think is a big problem because if you, if you want to live a rich, full, and meaningful life, oh, uh, I don't know what that was. <laughs> uh, um, uh, you know, if you want to live a rich, full, and meaningful life, there's going to be the full range of human emotions. So there will be lots of fear and sadness. And you know, if if you have no capacity to have those emotions, if if you try to live a life without fear or sadness or guilt, you would be very ineffective in your relationships and in the way you dealt with life's issues. So um, I, I think it's a massive difference. Yes, you know, we're kind of saying life comes with lots of pain. Let's stop trying to fight it, avoid it, get rid of it. Let's learn how to open up and make room for it. And let's go a step further. Let's learn how to use it. What are these painful emotions telling me? Your, your, your most painful emotions are often uh, uh, giving you really valuable information. They're, I agree. They're telling, uh, you know, telling you things about you need to address or face up to or do differently. I agree. There's no integrity in dishonesty, period. The book, The Confidence Gap, A Guide to Overcoming Fear and Self-Doubt by Russ Harris. I, I've already endorsed it. Go get your copy. Read it. it. It is a genuinely good read. I want to thank you, Russ, for your willingness to share everything with us today and for your work. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place, and do tell your friends. All right, until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.